Well, yeah. I mean, part of what our job is, I think, as an actor, those of us who like to think about this kind of thing, is we have to be able to, as Shakespeare said, or who was it, Shakespeare, to hold the mirror up to nature. And if we don't do that, Aristotle. Aristotle said that. Well, Shakespeare stole it from him. Okay, oh. that's <laughs> that's funny. Well, who said we have fear? The fear itself. Never mind. That's neither, neither, neither. Right. But we, I, I think that we have to look at the world in a very pragmatic and sort of unflinching manner. And we don't always get to do that in a lot of roles. But I was able to do it, I think, with with, uh, with Sherman McCoy. Everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and talk about movies that bombed in the theater, or maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, we have another episode with a legendary director. You're allowing me to use that term on this one, right? Today, you're you're allowed to use legendary director. Yes, and Troy, yeah. please. Uh, I want you to call me uh, scholar of Egyptian genitalia from now on, please. Oh my God, this again? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get to that. We have some uh, <laughs> feedback on it. But yes, you are a scholar of many unusual things. Mm -hmm. Brad, what movie are we going to talk about tonight? And from which legendary director? So from true legendary director, Brian <laughs> De Palma, we are talking about um, 1990s. I'm going to say question mark on this comedy question mark, huge question mark. Uh, the bond, the bonfires of the vanities. Bonfire the Vanities, yes. Uh, we will get into that. I'm not quite sure what it was. Um, I could, we'll yeah. get to it. All right, we'll get to it. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about tonight because we actually have a guest on and it's somebody that we've talked about in past episodes. So do you want to do the formal introduction, Brad? Yeah, so our buddy John, who uh, runs his own YouTube channel, which, okay, I, I, I just have the most amount of respect for people who put their face on YouTube and create content. But we have our buddy, John, um, first time guest, John, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. I uh, just want to thank you guys again for, uh, having me on. It's, uh, it's an act, it's a real pleasure. Like you guys and the gentleman's guide, of course, were a huge inspiration, uh, to, to go down the path that I went and, uh, it really inspired me to kind of do my own thing, you know? Awesome. Please pimp everything that you have, please go, go right ahead. Yeah. You're, you've uh, been busy, right? Yeah. You know what? So like, life has been crazy. So I was doing every week and that's what I'd ideally like to do. Um, but I found it's a bit challenging. So I've been doing every other week. Um, but I have a couple exciting things, um, going on. Um, this week I'm going to be, uh, covering a graphic novel. Um, you guys, I know are big comic book nerds. You grew up reading that stuff like myself. I'm a huge fan of Will Eisner. Um, oh. So I'm going to be covering a contract with God, um, which is like the godfather of, you know, the guy, he's basically the godfather of graph, the graphic novel. And uh, it's just a, a great story. If you've never read anything by uh, Will Eisner, he's just a fantastic writer, um, a beautiful visual storyteller. He's got it all. He can write, he can draw, he can do the whole nine. So I'm really excited about that. And then I'm going to be talking um, also about a film that came out in 2004 
uh, with John Travolta and uh, Scarlett Johansson and Gabriel Martin. It's called uh, A Love Song for Bobby Long. Oh uh, one, of, <laughs> one of those movies that slipped through the cracks. I think it's one of his better films. And, you know, like John Travolta's had the ups and downs of his career like oh, a yeah. million times. He's He's bounced back and forth between making these horrible films and then he somehow pulls something out of his ass and he makes these amazing films and he has these comebacks. And this, I thought was one of those films that just kind of like slipped through cracks. I think it was just an amazing film. Um, I think everybody should see it. The director, unfortunately just did that one film and she just disappeared off the face of the earth. So it's kind of sad, but it's a really good uh, story about a, like a, a professor uh, who's kind of lost his way, kind of becomes an alcoholic uh, he forms this relationship with Gabriel Ma, who's like his protege. And then all of a sudden, out of the middle of nowhere, uh, Scarlett Johansson's character kind of comes into play and they kind of form this unlikely friendship and kind of like figure things out. Um, really, really good movie. I definitely uh, highly recommend anyone that hasn't seen it. Um, so I'm hoping to go into that later on during the week. That's awesome. I, I love the channel because you tackle everything um, television, film, comic books, books. Uh, I, I mean, Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And like Brad said, it's, (laughs) I would never be able to just sit there (laughs) with a camera focused on me just talking about something. Trust me. It's unnerving. I sometimes I drive myself crazy because I'm like, here, I'm talking to myself. I mean, I'm talking to an audience, but I'm like for an hour and a half, like you guys, but I'm talking to myself. Oh, and and that's the other thing is like you do it by yourself. I I at least have Troy to beat up on. You don't have anyone to. I know. Seriously. You know how it is when you guys, you know, you guys create stuff. It doesn't matter if you're an artist, a writer, filmmaker. You do that this this thing you know we're our own worst critics oh, yeah. and especially as you're filming it you know and i don't really do any editing it's me my camera my cheap tripod and a lot of times i'll just start oh man i screwed something up i fumbled start over from the beginning and it's just because i don't do the editing it's just a, a lengthy process oh um, it's a one take deal Ooh, yeah 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 so i'm it's trying a wonder, to... it's a wonder show i didn't know that wow <laughs> okay well i wonder how i managed to get out sometimes but <laughs> oh i've got one more project that i'm um i want to talk about it's um coming up hopefully i'm just trying to get some more people um i'm gonna do something like once a month where i do what i'm doing now with the film but i'm also going to do um stuff that's uh based off source material like a graphic novel or a book and i'm going to try to get a group of people together and try to talk about the differences between the two. Uh, cause I've always found it's uh fascinating, like, like, like the movie we're talking about tonight. I hear the book is amazing. You know, it's always interesting to talk about the original source material as well as the, the film itself. So, well, that's, um, uh, that's something I'm, I'm working on. That's a great transition. But before we even talk oh, about the film in the book, yeah, yeah. You've, you've heard the podcast before and every first time guest has to go through the five question trial. So, I know, I know. And I, I tried to be sneaky and look up some of the past questions and hope that, you know, they'd be similar. We'll, we'll see what happens. All right. Well, we, we have a couple of questions that I think are geared specifically towards you. So I'm going to kick things off. Oh, okay. Uh, it's Great. one of my favorite questions to ask somebody, but what is your favorite film from your least favorite genre? And, and usually what I tell people is start with the genre you don't like. And what's your favorite movie from that genre? So this one is like, so I love horror, right? So I, but the subgenre of horror that I'm, I could never, it's not that I outright hate, but I could never fully embrace was the ghost story. Oh, um, I okay. did, I, I always had a hard time wrapping my head around. It. I don't know why. I don't know. Um, you know, I like, like the supernatural, like evil dead and those type, but like the actual ghost story kind of stuff, it never did anything for me. 
but like I'll tell your, you what, like your conjurings and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, that stuff, it just, it, for whatever reason, it's never connected with me. You know, I, it just did, it just didn't jive. Um, but I did see, and I'm kind of ashamed that I hadn't seen it sooner. I saw the changeling last year. Um, and I was blown away. That was one of those ones where it's like, wow, everything, it's just a perfect movie, in my opinion, from beginning to end. You know, there's just really no misfires throughout the entire movie, which I feel like it's something just so hard to do, you know? Oh, yeah. And the iconic uh, ball coming down the steps sequence, which I think is what everybody <laughs> yeah. knows that movie for. It's chilling, but it's so basic. I love it. That's a great pick. All right, Brad. Oh, well, thank you. You you've got the next one, and this this is the next couple of questions are we 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 kind of put together just for you. So yeah, oh, okay. Oh, I'm gonna be sneaky on me. See, I couldn't cheat. Okay, I figured that that <laughs> question would be that question would definitely be in there. Oh, that yeah. one I figured would be. We love that question. Troy is the professor who would give you the study guide for the final, and then be like, "And none of those questions are on the final." Yes. <laughs> uh, what never fails to make you laugh? What never fails to make me laugh? As far as films go, anything, just anything shit man you know like <laughs> i find like as far as just like because i'm from jersey and i have a dark sense of humor just like stupid shit that shouldn't you know i you know i, I i'm just someone like at work that falls you know i hate to say it slips on something that's like three stooges but right in front of you you know uh you know like just stupid things uh like that um which sounds ridiculous um as far as films i love stuff like you know like i grew up with stuff like you know like um office space and those type of Monty Python, you know, stuff like that. Um, as a kid growing up to watching three stooges endlessly, you know, I love the slapstick. I mean, I like all different types of humor, but you know, um, there's just so many different things when it comes to making me laugh, I guess. Okay. Um, well that's, that's a good answer because it plays into my question. So the, the title of your show over on YouTube is, and now for something a little bit different. Okay. So here's my question for you. What is your favorite Monty Python skit or scene from a Monty Python movie? I mean, I think I'm going to go old school and uh, probably, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they're doing the, the horses and they're driving around with the coconuts. You know, they couldn't afford horses for the for the film. And you see like a bunch of coconuts as they're walking around, you know, like I think that's just so iconic. Either that or at the end of the movie with the rabbit, you know, the killer rabbit that just flies out of nowhere, you know, because oh they God, couldn't yes. afford it. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's just, you can't go wrong with that, you know? Awesome. Those are good answers. Awesome. I, 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 those are approved. Yep. Not a bomb. Oh, well, thank you. There. <laughs> uh, all right. What is the first movie you remember seeing in the theater? So, okay, so my parents said they they brought me to Star Wars, the original, at a drive-in movie theater. Now, keep in mind, I was born in 74. That came out in 77, so I was only three years old. I have no memory of that. The first movie I actually have a remember, uh, that I can actually remember and it actually impacted me, believe it or not, was Popeye with Shelley Duvall and Robin Williams. You know, I remember seeing that in the theater and wow. you know, yeah. seeing the cartoon as a kid, you know, play endlessly at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, and just... Being like, oh, here's Popeye on the big screen, and you know, that's that one, was the first one that I. That's one we'll talk about at some point. It's no, it's super should, interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you, you got the last question, Brad. Okay. And what is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend? Oof, that's a t that's you know that's a tough one, and I kept on going back and forth on that one because there's, I kind of um, you know, I probably cheat and give you two answers. Um, I'd say. Most recently, um, I saw a movie called Five Twenty Five Seventy Seven, uh, and it's a coming of age story about a teenager. He's alienated. He wants to be an aspiring 
uh, filmmaker and um, he sees Star Wars for the first time. And of course, like all of us, that just blew him away and um, just a really awesome film. So that would be the most recent one. Um, like I said, I'm going to cheat and give you one more. Um, there's a Russian film came out, I think, in 2010 or 2011. It's called 12. And what it is, is a uh, loose remake of 12 Angry Men. Um, and it's an awesome film. Um, it is on Tubi, so you can find it if people are looking for a, a good watch. And uh, I don't hear anyone ever get talked about the movie at all. It, it got nominated for an Academy. But despite that, I, I never hear anyone actually talk about the film. And it's it's a really good film. Awesome. And I'm not usually one for remakes. You know, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to remakes, but usually I'm on a hardcore stick with the original kind of guy. Unless you can do something really interesting with the remake, you know? Yeah, no, of course. Or in a completely different direction. The know? first one that you talked about, I think you recommended to us because it's on our list, the 52577. Yeah, um, yeah. Because there's there's a website. I think it's Hamilton Book or HamiltonBooks.com. I think it's uh -huh. Singular Choice Is it book. Singular Book? Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I, I will go there on a regular basis and just kind of search out um, what they're doing in clearance. And that was a Blu-ray that I think I picked up for eight bucks because of your recommendation. So, yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely worth picking up. It's another one that was in production for a while. I think they had a hard time raising money for it. Um, there was just a lot of issues from what I understand behind the scenes. Um, but it's one of those ones that, man, especially for us, you know, sci-fi people, you know, like. I feel like it didn't get seen. It probably got seen by like some of the people like gentlemen's guide to midnight cinema and a couple other, those type of groups, but by the general public, like if you like that movie fanboys, yes, like, yes, I do. Along, something <laughs> yes, like I do. Along those, something along those lines. It's, it's along those lines, but not that that movie's not heartfelt at all, but it's, it has like a real heart to it, you know? And, uh, it's one of those movies that just like, wow, you know, you're just kind of blown away by it, you know? So I, I definitely recommend uh, both of those films for, for people. I think they're both, uh, worth their, worth your time. Awesome. Well, the movie we're talking about tonight, it's, it's super interesting. We're going to, we're going to get into a lot of the, uh, behind the scenes of production. And it's a film that I picked based on a book uh, that I read last summer. So more on that, mm. but we're going to go all the way back to 1990 when this thing came out. Um, it was a high profile film because it was based on a high profile book, but Brad, when this came out into the general audiences, it didn't get a really good reception, right? So do you want to go back and talk about that? Sure. So Bonfires comes out 1990. That's uh, De December 21st of 1990. And it's got a reported budget of $47 million. Troy, we are looking at a return of $15.6 million. Ouch. So about a third, oh, less yeah. than a third. Hey. Uh, that's all domestic. This thing didn't have an international release. Um, box office mojo kind of screwing with the show today because, uh, opening weekend, it comes in eighth, but it doesn't tell me the rest of the films that beat it that week. So <laughs> okay. box office mojo, fix your stuff. Um, here's where we also have an issue. Troy. Yep. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes. We are looking at a 15% with critics and a 26% with the audience. Nobody likes this Ooh, thing. Man, that's, yeah, so, that's, so we are looking at the old double whammy. Yep. Uh, critics and financially. And Troy, <clears throat> here's a little gift for you. I know you don't feel well. Hopefully this cheers you up. <laughs> Movieguide.org. <gasps> oh, yeah. Let me know oh, when man. to play your theme song. Uh, let me. Uh, so for those not familiar, Movieguide is a website that 
reviews films not for their quality, but for content of our little Christian minds. And they use a scale of plus four to minus four. Troy, you can hit the music. What do we think? Bonfires of the Vanities sits at on their scale. I'm going to let John guess first since he's our guest. Um, I don't know. I, I'd say we said the, the one is right. The lowest, right? Or negative no, it's four plus four to minus four. So minus yeah. four would be the worst thing a little Christian boy or girl could see. Plus four would be the holiest. I mean, listen, it's not Ken Russell's the devils, you know, so I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't think it's like crazy insane. I mean, I would say knowing them, I would say probably like minus three, maybe. I don't know. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm going negative two. All right, John, one for one. So you oh. can just retire now. It is a minus three. Dang. A little short one here, but uh, that's what she said. Um, <laughs> Contents, approximately 78 obscenities and 25 profanities. We Did we like agree that obscenity was a higher level curse word than a profanity? Is that what we I think? I think so. I think that's okay. how it works. Yeah. All right. Adultery, sexual innuendo, and brief female nudity, vandalism, and brief violence, drunkenness, racial slurs, perjury, and lying. I think wow. this is the first time we've had a racial slur on uh, old movie guide. And finally, films you could have seen in December of 1990. Gentlemen, I will let you know that this was a good uh, time to go to the movies. First off, we have Edward Scissorhands, oh. The Grifters, The Rookie, Look oh. Who's Talking to, Mermaids, The Russian House, uh, Awakenings, Hamlet, Kindergarten Cop. Kindergarten Cop made $202 million. Of course Godfather it Part 3, The Green Card. Pretty good month. Yeah, December yeah. Wow. December is always uh it's not as big as the as the summer season, but it's I mean if you're if you're looking for a big box office draw, you're getting it for like the Christmas holidays or the summer, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yep. makes sense. Okay. Well, we are going to talk about one director, Brian De Palma. So he produced and directed this thing. We spent a lot of time talking about Mr. De Palma back on episode fifty six when we talked about blowout. This won't be the only time um you know, that he shows up on the show. He's got a couple other bombs in his filmography outside of even bonfire. Just a little context. Um, he did the untouchables in 1987, which was a big hit casualties of war with Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn in 89, which was a box office bomb. That's one we'll talk about bonfire. The vanities comes out in 90 and, uh, obviously this one didn't do so well, but he follows it up with raising Kane in 1990 with John Lithgow. And that one actually does pretty good. I think all three of us, and I, I kind of wanted to derail just real quick. All three of us spent a little time with a documentary from 2015 called De Palma, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That was excellent. I, I mean, I'm playing my hand on that one. That, that, I loved it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to kind of get everybody's general feel about De Palma, especially after watching this documentary. So it's a documentary from 2015 from Noah Bombach and Jake Paltrow. And really what it is, is it's just the camera on Brian De Palma and him talking about his filmography as if you were just sitting right next to him and they show clips of his films and everything else. So I'm going to kick it over to you, John. I mean, I, I, I follow you on uh, socials and I know that this week you've just kind of went headfirst in the entire De Palma filmography. 
Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that I had missed, you know, so I, I, I wanted to try to cover as much ground as I could. There's a lot of like the big stuff I'd seen, like Carrie, Blowout, Carlito's Way, uh, you know, Scarface. But there were quite a few that I, were kind of, I was kind of missing. And um, I wanted to try to kind of fill in some gaps. But, and for the most part, like yeah. as far as filmmakers go, I, you know, I think he's for the most part. I will say that he swings for the fences. And he doesn't always hit a home run, but when he does, he does. And even when he fails, he usually manages to make something interesting. That's the that's what that like the vibe I've always gotten from him. Don't don't get me wrong. There's been a couple of cases where he's really failed. You know, he's really you know right shit the bed. Pardon my French, but uh, uh, you know, generally speaking, yeah, I, I think um, he usually tends to make something that's at least interesting for me. You know, like I was watching The Fury last night. And that's not a perfect film, in my opinion, by any means, but it it's an interesting film and you're it, you don't expect what's coming next. And it's like you're seeing all this batshit crazy one thing after another happen. And you don't see you can't say that you predict what's going to happen at the end. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of those movies that just throws you, which I think is interesting, you know, because I think too many directors are kind of predictable. They're, they paint by numbers. And I think that's boring, you know, yeah. at least someone that's going to throw you off a little and have something interesting to say, you know? Okay. And so watching his films and then watching the filmography, did do you, or I guess documentary, do you, do you think the documentary did a good job of sort of getting um, his vision captured or what he was trying to do with each of the films they talked about? I mean, do you have a bit more understanding about him as a person and a yeah, director? Yeah. You can kind of see, like, I think like the, they kind of try to tell you his story and, you know, like he was explaining, you know, there sometimes there were, stuff like like misfires and some of that had to do with being forced to cast certain people um sometimes it had to do with the the budget sometimes you know there were a lot of different factors that came in to play and and i think it painted it seemed like a pretty um fair and accurate picture of him um as a director and it kind of gave you uh, a little bit about his history and where he's been and that kind of stuff so I, I thought it was really interesting okay what about you, Brad? I mean, we've, we've talked about De Palma as a director before, but um, now that you've watched this documentary, I don't know if you watched any other films like John this week of, um, from De Palma, but uh, what, what do you think about him now? Yeah, so I got Carlito's Way in. I hadn't seen that in a while. Um, and Arrow just put out, I don't know, a little bit ago, they put out that set, and I had gotten it, and I had, um, hadn't put it in to see it yet. So I watched that. Um, and I don't know what it is about me. I don't know if like kids have softened me, uh, but I sat there and watched, you know, De Palma talk about his filmography and, and all the stuff that goes with it and him struggling, even though he's Brian De Palma to like get control over some of his films and being told at who to cast and like seeing him discuss and, and kind of break down his own films. Like, strangely got me really emotional okay. I, I i just i just like seeing a guy like that talk through his his work and discuss it pretty honestly it just struck me as is like really authentic and and just to see a guy kind of reflect on himself uh really really kind of touched me in in to have a self-awareness that some people don't have i just was really um, enthralled with it and, and, and really, it, it, it really, it really got me like, I didn't cry or anything, but I definitely was, was emotionally invested in just watching De Palma speak. And I'm like, I wish more 
directors would take a more earnest look at their careers and talk about things that worked and things that didn't work and why things worked and why they didn't. And Hey, you know, my vision was this and sometimes it just doesn't come together and it doesn't work. But like John was saying, the Palma has an eye for things and and even if things don't work, there is a level of craftsman crass craftsmanship that goes to his films in the making of his films that at least there have some flares. Uh, but yeah, I, I was really sort of touched by, by his, uh, by his documentary and Carlito's way. Spoiler alert is a really good movie. Uh, <laughs> I think kind of overlooked. I, I, I think he considers and, that like one of his best. Yeah. And I, uh, it's I mean, hard I compare- with the, no, God, I'm sorry. I, and with Sapama, it's it's hard to say like what his best is. Like Untouchables is probably my favorite, but maybe Carlito's Way is his best directed film, if I could put it in that way. Yeah, I think we talked about that. Like with him, yeah. you have a favorite, but then you also go, oh, I, I think this might be his best film. Um, I'd have to go back and, and look at it because, I mean, what you think one year, it's going to change, right? I wanted to, I wanted to go back and watch the black Dahlia because I had only seen that in the theater in what? Oh, six. Yeah. And I haven't seen it since. And I remember because I was, you know, younger, not hating it. I just want to see it again. So I think that might be on my list to watch again soon. And you were going to say something, John? Oh yeah, no, I was going to say, I agree with you. Like Carlito's way is an amazing story. Um, that's a, a fantastic one, uh, Brad. And, um, like I much prefer to personally, I'm not a big Scarface guy. I, I, you would think my personality, I would love these crazy over the top for me. It just doesn't do anything for me, but people love that movie. But Carlito's way, I feel like it's a story that's more compelling and more interesting. I uh, care more about the characters, you know, um, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I, and I love that he does stuff like something like Carlito's way. And then he does something like the untouchables, which, which are both great stories. But then, you know, he does something like he does these other movies, like these batshit crazy movies, like the fury. That's pretty crazy. And, you know, like dress to kill, um, body double. These are both like, they're really good movies, but they're also like, they just really just go there. You know, they go to some crazy places and, uh, it's cool that he's, he's able to show that kind of range. Cause I feel like a lot of directors, don't show a lot of range. I feel like there's just kind of pinned into one kind of area. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's also kind of a little bit, I don't know. I think a little boring, you know, well, it's just my thoughts. I'll say this. It's, it's, an, it's really interesting. You say that there, there are three things I learned from that documentary. Cause I'm, I am probably a Brian De Palma apologist. I, I love uh-huh. his work. And even I, I kind of, I agree with you when he swings for the fences and even misses to me, there's always something interesting uh, yeah. within that film. Right. But <clears throat> there are three things that stuck out watching this documentary. One, he's very much at odds with Hollywood. Um, specifically, I don't really think he likes working in that ecosystem and in that business model. And I think that comes through in each of his anecdotes or storytelling uh, as he's talking about how he puts a movie together, especially when you get to stuff like Mission to Mars. Um, and he really felt overwhelmed by that. The other thing is you said that he sort of tries all these different things. I kind of got this impression that he tries all these different things, but he pretty much has made a career out of his love for Hitchcock and he openly admits that. 
So he may dabble in all these different genres, horror, suspense, dark comedy, uh, you know, very, very heavy drama, like casualties of war. Sure. But, but he's, he's bringing something that he picked up from his love for Hitchcock and trying to kind of put that within that story. And there was a, there was something that he said that just kind of really resonated with me when he said, most directors, creative periods are in their thirties, forties, and fifties. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting take on it where he basically says all these things that you may be doing as a director leading up to a certain period in your time, that's like the practice run. But if you go back and look at some of the directors, and I think he's talking about the majority, not the yeah. Orson Welles of the group or the Steven Spielbergs, but maybe he's looking at the majority of directors and, and talking about himself too and saying, hey, my best work in, in my 30s, 40s, and 50s, like that's that's where I hit my apex. And then everything outside of that has been art but it wasn't going to hit um, the highs that he was doing in that time of his life. And I thought that was a, that was an incredibly personal statement. No, absolutely. Yeah. So let's, let's also talk about some of the other people behind the camera. We've got screenplay by Michael Christopher. So leading up to bonfire, of the vanities he had worked on, um, did the screenplay for the witches of Eastwick in 1987 mm-hmm. does this film and then follows this film up with a Richard gear um, screenplay for, called Mr. Jones in 93. And I, I thought this was kind of interesting. This is for our good friend, Jose. Uh, as an actor, he played Philip Price in the TV series, Mr. Robot from 2015 to 2019. I know Jose's going through that series right now. And um, the film is based on a very, very popular book called The Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, the, the movie itself is not, um, how should we say this? It, it takes a lot of the characters from the book, but it is not as dark as the book. The ending's different. So it changed a lot of aspects from, you know, print to screen. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the production and development. Cinematography. Uh, this name's come up a couple of times. Uh, Vilmos uh, Zygmunt. So he's an Academy Award winner for Best Cinematography on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977. For those who don't know this, too, De Palma runs in this crowd where Steven Spielberg's like his best friend and he's, he hangs out with Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, you know, they, they all kind of came up in the system together. The new Hollywood crowd, the new Hollywood yeah. crowd. Yep. And, uh, our cinematographer Vilmos was also nominated for deer hunter in 79, the river in 84 and the black Dahlia in 2006. Uh, there's another name I just want to point out cause it's, <clears throat> it's kind of important when you talk about production and development. It's the second unit director, Eric Schwab. More on him in a minute. And then our editors, Bill Pankow and David Ray. Now, in front of the camera, and we're talking about 1990, I think you actually have a pretty stacked cast. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, you know, Melanie Griffith, you know, Kim Cattrall. I mean, how could you get And the whoa, and uh, Morgan Freeman. Yeah. God, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah, so just just for context, we've got Tom Hanks. So here's what he's doing around this time period. You've got The Burbs in 89, Turner and Hooch in 89, Joe versus the Volcano in 1990, Bonfire of the Vanities in 90, and then A League of Their Own in 92. Real I quick. Think, we're, oh, go oh, ahead. I was going to say, I think 92, is that well big in 88? But is is is... Tom Hanks, as we know, kind of, kind of catapulted to A-list star from a league of their own. Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Apollo thirteen. Like he then 
then like he is in a whole different stratosphere than any yeah, other and, actor. I, if I'm not mistaken, I think right up to this point, I think it was pretty much he was, t- you know, Tom Hanks, the comedy guy, with the exception mm-hmm. of like nothing in common with Jackie Gleason. That's the only thing I can think of that he like really went drama, but I don't think that did anything. Um, but yeah, up to this point, like you said, Turner and Hooch and all these comedies, he was still known as the comedy guy. Yeah. Was right before. He uh, launched into the big dramatic career. I I, th- I think the early '90s is where you're seeing that shift, right? So you get the Burbs and Turner yeah. and Hooch, then you get into the '90s, and he's starting to do, um, not your slapstick comedy, the zany Tom Hanks stuff. He's yeah. kind of maturing a little bit, and then to your point, Brad, he he gets into this A-list crowd with these big dramatic films, and you know he becomes the Tom Hanks we know today. I mean, I I don't know if there's an actor that has a better, this is oddly specific, an eight-year run. Like he does. So he has <laughs> a league of their own sleep is in Seattle, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, toy story, that thing you do, which he also directs and is the screenwriter saving private Ryan, uh, toy story Two, the green mile Castaway, catch me. If you can road to perdition. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. After, after 2000, I mean, he could have done anything. He, ever wanted to do and he does because he does the terminal in 2004 and everyone's like what the hell is this but anyway whatever yeah no you're absolutely right i mean he is really coming to his own at this time period then we also have bruce willis which i think is interesting so back in episode 146 we talk about a film that i love that i don't think you have the appreciation for brad no because it sucks shut up it's 1991's (laughs) hudson hawk uh, but here's another individual sort of on top of the world and is considered a big box office draw. And if you think about 1990, just that year alone, he has Die Hard 2, you know, the follow-up to probably is the biggest film in his career. Uh, Look Who's Talking To, a sequel to another huge hit for him. And then he does Bonfire of the Vanities. And then Melanie Griffith, I mean, she's no slouch either. She has In the Spirit in 1990, Pacific Heights in 1990, which is a great thriller with Michael Keaton and then bonfire the vanity. So these three people are on your poster and from a studio uh, perspective, you pretty much think you're printing money at this point, considering, you know, it's not just a flawless track record, but they are a big box office draw just on those three names. Wouldn't you agree? No, absolutely. I mean, you have three actors in there that are consistently putting out, you know, work that's that's doing well in the box office, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there are three people you can put on the poster and it should put butts in seats. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I agree. And then to round out the cast, we get Kim Cattrall as Judy McCoy. So that's uh, Tom Hanks' wife in the film. Morgan Freeman as Judge Leonard White. F. Murray. Troy, yep. You've, you've missed an opportunity to say the film. Which film am I? Did I miss? Big Trouble Little China. Oh yes, Big Trouble Little China. Um, okay. I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to limit the filmography on everybody. We'll be here all night. But she she, she was in Big Trouble. <laughs> she China. was in Big Trouble in Little China. I'm staring at the movie poster in my basement right now. So, uh, Morgan Freeman as Judge Leonard White. We got F. Murray Abraham as D. A. Abe Vice. Now he's uncredited. We'll get to why. Saul Rubinick as Jed Kramer. John Ham- Troy. Hold on. Stop I treated you like me. a son. Stop you it. Stab me in the heart. Stop it. John Stop Hancock you. as Reverend Bacon. Last but not least, a uh, an actress who plays the, the role of Campbell McCoy, Kirsten Dunst. Now, you may not know her. She sang this song with Tool called Jambi. 
and was also the voice of Jambi the Genie in Pee Wee's Playhouse. So really interesting. Ju- Jumanji. Oh, Jumanji. Jumanji. Yeah, I totally sorry. messed yeah. that up. I totally messed that up. Uh, I sent you. I sent you that the other day, and I was like, "Look who's back!" Yeah, Jambi herself. Yep. <clears throat> okay, real quick. The reason why we're talking about this last summer uh, on the beach, I read a book called "The Devil's Candy: The Bonfire of the Vanities Goes to Hollywood." It's also, I think they changed its title at some point to "The Devil's Candy: The Anatomy of a Hollywood Fiasco," and um, it's a book from 1991, written by uh, Julie Salomon. I cannot recommend this book enough. If you're you love movies. So Julie was a film critic for the Wall Street Journal and wanted to document the novel's film adaptation. She was pretty much granted all access to everything concerning the filming of the Bonfire of the Vanities. I mean, from the very start, the the inception of the script, all the way through the press junket. This book is fat. If you want to know exactly what goes in to making a film, this it's a quick read in my opinion. But it's a really fascinating book. To give you some examples of some of the stories that are in here, um, second unit led by Eric Schwab, so that second unit director, tried to get the perfect shot of a plane landing at JFK, specifically a Concorde. It happens towards the beginning of the film. What he was looking for was a time during sunset when the plane would look perfect with the setting sun. It was a five-camera shot costing $80,000 that lasted 10 seconds in the film. He was doing it to win a bet with Brian De Palma because the director didn't think it could be done. That's I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful shot. It is, but <clears throat> there's it's sections irrelevant. of this. It's irrelevant to the movie. <laughs> there are sections of this book. They keep going back to Eric who, as they're going through all the stuff that's going on, you know, with the making of the film, then here's Eric yeah. doing all this math and calculation. Like, how's he going to get this shot? And it's actually a really interesting subplot that goes through the book. And you're like, is this, is this guy going to spend that much money? And, and is De Palma going to let it happen? Is the studio going to let it happen? Just to get the shot that last 10 seconds. But it gives you an idea of what went on behind the scenes in making this film. There was controversy of casting the judge, who originally in the book was a, a Jewish character, but the studio was terrified there were no sympathetic black characters, so they hired Morgan Freeman. And there's this whole casting uh, debacle and all these people they went through just to finally land a Morgan Freeman. Um, there's an entire sections on De Palma's um, attention to detail over finding the right courtroom for a scene that he wanted to film and all the different places they had to visit, how much money they spent on that. There's tons of politics that occurred behind the scenes with the local leadership, both the mayor of New York City and um, some of the the local leaders in the Bronx in terms of its depiction of the Bronx and uh, some back and forth that, that went on. Bruce Willis, like everything surrounding him, apparently nobody got along with him. And there's some great stories about that. Uh, De Palma, who's directing Melanie Griffith again, and they, they worked in the past, but you get a glimpse into what their relationship is in 1990 and how close it is. Um, but there's some great stories about how that develops. And, and here's another thing I never knew. Uma Thurman auditioning for the Maria Ruskin role and how that played out. And Tom, Tom Hanks didn't like her, right? Yeah, Tom Hanks' input and De Palma thought she was great. But, you know, just uh, test screenings over this climactic sword fight between Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis that takes place at the end of the film but never made it into the film. Oh, I was going to say, did I fall oh, wow. asleep? Because I don't remember a sword no, fight like, in this movie. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. And, 
you, you get to read all of the events when the script was first written all the way through the press junkets when the film is released. And it's incredibly in depth at modern Hollywood filmmaking. So definitely put it on your reading list, but here's some, here's some other facts about the film. When the project was first pitched and Mike Nichols was attached as the original director, he wanted Steve Martin for the role of Sherman McCoy, but the studio rejected it because they thought Martin was too old for the role. Tom Wolfe, who wrote the book, wanted Chevy Chase for McCoy. Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, and Christopher Reeve were also considered for the role. So those are the actors that were just circling this part, right, for Warner Brothers. Brian De Palma ultimately came on board to direct and offered the role of Peter Fallow to both Jack Nicholson and John Cleese. So they were supposed to do it instead of Bruce Willis. But both actors turned down the role. When De Palma was unable to deliver an actor, the studio forced him to cast Bruce Willis, who had starred in the successful 1988 film Die Hard. Uh, here, here's some stuff about the judge. Walter Matthau was initially offered the role of the judge, but demanded a fee of $1 million. The producers balked at the meeting um, and signed Alan Arkin instead for a modest $150,000. Arkin was then replaced by Morgan Freeman when the studio decided to change the judge's ethnicity from a Jewish to African-American in order to respond to criticism of the film's racial politics. And dialogue was aid, uh, added to have the judge denounce the manipulative actions of the main characters. De Palma said he, quote, didn't want to racially polarize the film by having a white judge talking morality to basically a black audience. Arkin refused to waive his payment after being recast. Edward James almost was also considered for the role of the judge. And again, ultimately goes to Morgan Freeman. And I think he was only there for like a day or two. F. Marie Abraham, who had a significant part in the film as the district attorney, chose not to be credited because of a contract dispute. So what had happened was he thought he was getting one of the top billings along with Hanks and Griffith and Willis. And when that wasn't going to happen, he's like, just take my name off the film. De Palma wanted Uma Thurman to play Maria Ruskin. Thurman tested for the role, but Tom Hanks felt that she wasn't right for the part. And eventually they landed on Melanie Griffith. And the studio made significant changes to source material, making Sherman McCoy more sympathetic and adding a subplot involving a minor character, Judge Leonard White, eventually played by Freeman. Um, and th there's significant differences to how the book ends versus this film. And even when you go back and read The Devil's Candy, you'll also see the differences in what they were doing with the screenplay. So um, they went through a couple of different ed you know, endings and test screenings that didn't do well, et cetera, like the sword fight, et cetera, that just didn't mm -hmm. make it. And then we're left with the product that we have today. So, um, I, guys, honestly, if you, if you haven't read that book, just please go read that book. If you love film. No, it I, sounds fascinating. It really does. I wish I had more time. It's a busy week. I was thinking about ordering it and giving it a quick read, but I just, just too much going on this week. Yeah, I think but it sounds amazing. I think there's a podcast. You must remember this, who did a series on the making of the film and they, they interview the author, Julie of the oh, book. Okay. So if you, if you don't like reading and it's boring to you. You can also find some great podcasts on this outside of our own. I think it's called, I think it's called the plot thickens. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. That one. Yeah. There, okay. There's a couple of podcasts that have done some series on this. I know you must remember this tackled it and the plot thickens did it as well. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that's all the behind the scenes. How about we take a quick break and we come back. We're going to share our thoughts on 1990s, the bonfire, the vanity. So stay tuned. A cup of whipped hot chocolate tastes great right now. Carnation's Cocoa Supreme. A delicious hot chocolate drink with the light, delicate flavor you like. Wouldn't a good hot cup taste good right now? 
ask for a cup of whipped hot chocolate at our snack bar. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement, and everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl everyone makes fun of, the girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother, the girl with the strange power. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. She'll be voted queen of the prom. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. <coughs> Carrie, a new film by Brian De Palma, based on the chilling bestseller. Carrie, from United Artists, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. Here we go. John, I'm going to kick it over to you. I'm really curious. You spent a whole week just watching Brian De Palma films. Uh, and I think you watched this one maybe once, once and a half. Is that right? Yeah, I tried. To, I watched it Saturday and I tried to watch it today, but I just didn't. I had to go to work, so I didn't get a chance to finish it. Okay. So what, what do you think about the movie? Ultimately, you know, I, such conflicted feelings because I do like De Palma. Like I said earlier, I, I love even when he fails, I think he still makes something interesting. I feel like the shell of the story is there and it, and you have a great cast, but ultimately with the exception of Morgan Freeman, like I just couldn't be, I couldn't get into it. Like I tried, but I just felt it was bland. And um, like, I felt like they were forcing you to kind of like the Sherman McCoy character, but it just like, they tried to make him sympathetic, but I, it's hard to sympathize with him, you know, like I, you know, I really wanted to sympathize him with him, but I just didn't see anything sympathetic about him. I, I just feel like, um, it just didn't really do it for me as a whole. You know, um, I feel like as much as I love Hanks, I don't think his character was despicable enough for what they were going for. I think they probably should have went like a darker tone. I think it would have been awesome to see Hanks actually take on a character where, He's always been America's sweetheart, the nice guy. Take on a like a dark, a really dark, dirty character, you know. And um, and Bruce Willis, I mean, he he can do comedy. Obviously, you see something like Moonlighting. There's been other stuff where he's done stuff besides the action guy. I feel like I didn't get enough of a a, a taste of the reporter. Like I wasn't, I didn't get enough of them to be like, oh, okay, this guy's interesting. I'm I'm like caring about what's going on and the story that he's reporting, you know. Same thing with Melanie Griffith. She just plays, I mean, she plays it well, but she plays like the kind of like the stereotypical like bimbo. And that's fine. That's kind of like what the role was, kind of this vapid character. But as a whole, as as much as I wanted to like this movie and like, dude, I'm all about not having a film be a bomb. I'd, I'd rather, much rather be like, I love this thing. It just didn't connect for me, you know? Um, Did- like I said, I, I do give props to Morgan Freeman because he was great in his role. I really liked his his brief role and and I think everybody tried. 
Um, I don't think anyone was like horrible, but it was just kind of, I felt kind of like, like just bland, you know? Okay. Well, uh, did, it it like a, to, did it feel like a Brian De Palma film? What's that? Did it feel like it a Brian no, De Palma film? No, I don't feel like, I, I personally don't think it felt like a De Palma film, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's better than like Mission to Mars or some of his ones that I would like feel like, eh, but it, it just, um, it just, it just didn't do anything for me. Like story-wise, you know, like I said, it just didn't, uh, I wanted to like it more, but I just, uh, I just couldn't get there, you know? Okay. I wish I could. No, no, that's fair. Um, Brad, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to guess I, as I was watching this film, I'm like, I, I think Brad's going to have an aneurysm. Um, oh, this, this movie is an utter failure, Troy. Okay. I thought so. <laughs> it, it, it is an utter failure. Uh, I, I'll get, so it does have some flair, some the palm of flair. Like there's a nice overhead shot and the camera spinning uh, around. I, I did like that. There's some split screen shots. There's some foreground focus, you know, shots where the characters uh, in the foreground are in focus and then the background's kind of blurred out. So there is some of his trickery there. Uh, but that's about all the positives I have to say. Uh, for this thing um i mean i don't even know what bruce willis is doing in this film he, a he opens with narration and then like he's it, it's just like why i i don't understand why why bruce willis is in this film what he's doing um kind of what his motivation is because he seems to waffle a little bit um and then we get to our are Sherman McCoy and he's supposed to at some point like be the anti-hero but then at the end he gets off scot-free but he lied to like get there and you're like okay so we get this this white guy who is middle upper class uh pretty much has everything came from a rich uh family um, you know, has a, has a nice apartment, uh, does a crime. At least he's like a, 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 a company to a crime and basically gets away with it. And, and well, he, he loses everything, but uh, I mean, but Troy, yeah, Troy, yeah. Troy, we know this guy, he's going to be just fine. I, that's interesting. Yeah. Why, I don't, white I, guys like him don't fail. <laughs> they, they were so at some point in time he will be just fine uh and then and then uh, like john was saying melody griffith plays like the sex pot character that look i mean that's what the character calls for but at that point in time don't don't cast melanie griffith because you're just wasting her talent like just give me give me somebody that's just going to be there you know to to be a sex pot and, and nothing else that's wasted talent that you have. Um, well, that, but so I, that character is actually what the book, the devil's candy is based off of the devil's candy okay. refers to a line. I can't remember the, the producer. Somebody said, it said, when we cast this role, this, this individual has to be like the devil's candy. Like it's just irresistible, mm -hmm. right? That, oh, well, so, I mean, yeah. she's, I mean, she's pretty hot in this movie. Um, I just, I, I, everything else about this thing, I really hated. Uh, I, the story is really weird and there's a lot of these racial, th it feels like, it feels like the old white guy who would just be like, I can't be racist cause I hate everybody just the same. If you're not white, I hate you. <laughs> and that's kind of what we're doing here. And you know, there's, 
I, it's just a, it's a complete and utter mess. I, I can't imagine that anyone on their first viewing would be like, okay, I get what they're going for here. I, I, I think it's just so convoluted and so messy that it, it feels like a half-baked idea. And I want to know like where it went wrong because I, I feel like this one got away because it doesn't feel like De Palma had control of this. Not like, not like Hollywood controlled, but just had a grasp of what the story should be and how he should tell it. Um, because I literally five minutes into this thing, I was like, I am not going to like this and it's going to have to do something to get me back on board. Uh, I, I just like Bruce Willis is sleepwalking through this movie. Like he, <laughs> that is he an understatement. Could, yes. He could care less. Like he, is playing a drunk. And I'm like, I think they had to add that in there because he was probably drunk throughout the whole film. So they just did that. Do, to make do it, you think uh, so? Because I, I found even his drunk acting wasn't believable. Yeah. I mean, he wore those sunglasses the whole time. So it's like, yeah, he can, yeah, I, I don't know, but you know, in, in like even a 1990s, Tom, uh, Tom Hanks, like is, is like, I, I just never bought, like, it's hard to buy, Tom Hanks is that guy because like he's doesn't seem like he's like an evil person. Um, see, now I would have loved to see because he's not known for that. I would have loved him to go against type and file the novel. See the Palma in the documentary. I don't know if you guys remember, he actually mentions at one point, he's like, if I would have went by the novel, Everyone in the character, apparently in the novel, is despicable. Yeah. And you're not rooting for anybody. He said, if I would have gone that route, it would have ended my career. Yeah, the, the novel get, is very much an indictment of New York City, the politics at that time, yeah. the, the media, et cetera. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the biggest, not the biggest, one of the biggest changes is the Sherman McCoy character from the novel to the screen and, and trying to make this character uh, that you got to follow around for two hours go well at some point you got to feel sympathy for him towards the end of it that that's the biggest change it's from like the trying novel. to make patrick bateman sympathetic you know yeah you know exactly but but maybe I, a little bit of extreme comparison there but you know what i mean like but i would have i would have loved to have seen them go dark and can you think about tom hanks when has he done anything where you're like man this guy's a real slime ball like maybe the lady killers is the closest to where well, he road to perdition, like road to perdition. Yeah. I think he's great. Oh, yeah, true. He, he has that road coldness. I haven't him. seen the Elvis movie. I hear he, nah. he does a pretty slimy, uh, character there, but, but uh, um, no, I like to go back. Like I, I understand what they're doing with like the media yeah. and trying to, you know, play all this, all, all the, the racial stuff and, and, and using like, kind of the Al Sharpton character a bit. Like I, I get all what they're trying to do. Just yeah. nothing worked. Like literally nothing works in this. Like I, I could not fathom how this thing just got away. And, and to me, it's, this is like a, a showcase in a director who's been doing it up to this point, like 25 years and how they can even fail at the most basic level to put together a cohesive story. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm kind of with you guys. I, I think, I think there is an interesting film somewhere in the screenplay. I, for me, it starts with the screenplay. 
Oh, absolutely. That's uh, the foundation. Yeah. And I like the idea because if, if you boil it down, you go, okay, there's an event that can be interpreted based on race, uh, which is this hit and run event, right? And it kind of is what kicks things off. And- when they like see the black guys and then they turn the camera on Tom Hanks and he's got that look on his face, I'm like, okay, this is what we're doing here. It like focuses in on his face and he looks like he has seen two Bigfoots coming towards him. Like it is a <laughs> yeah, weird and, look. And it should be a weird, uh, to me, if it was going to be a dark satirical commentary and you have the haves and the have nots and there's supposed to be event that sparks it off. And then the rest of the film is okay. How do special interest groups, politicians, the media control, you know, the message for their own interests mm-hmm. um, and, and the whole decency and the truth and what happens kind of goes out the window and in the place of all of that is the story or this concept that uh, if the truth isn't going to set you free, then just lie. Like I, I like that basic foundation that I think they tried to do a screenplay around, but I agree with you both. Um, if you're going to do that, you can't pull your punches and they pull their punches. They, they try yeah, to kind of please everybody. Um, I mean, this around. is the definition of pussyfooting around. It, it is 100%. And the, and the elements are there for this scathing dark comedy. And, and maybe it's there in the original novel. I haven't, I haven't read the novel. But yeah, no, I'm definitely curious about the novel. Yeah, me too. No, but nobody behind the camera or in front of the camera commits to that concept, in my opinion. De Palma no. is interested in the perfect shot. And this does feel like a, a De Palma film to me. Hanks is trying to... Techni- be, technically, it does. Technically, yes. Yes. And, and that's on display. I think Hanks is trying his best to turn an adulterer into something likable, right? Willis doesn't know what movie he's in. And Melanie Griffith thinks her sole purpose is to kind of walk around in underwear and talk dirty. And um, th- to me, it just, it all doesn't gel. Now, the, the De Palma shots, like if you look at it from a technical perspective and just mute the thing, there's some great stuff in here. Um, oh, that opening scene was amazing. Yeah, Peter, Peter follows yeah. introduction. Shots from a technical perspective, absolutely. Yeah, the limousine to the stage, this long, one long elaborate tracking shot and how it's coordinated, it's fantastic. This... Uh, elaborate crane shot for no reason um, of Tom Hanks in the rain, walking his dog, going to the, going to a phone booth looks fantastic. Um, The introduction of the Reverend, like that's probably my favorite shot in the film because you get this fantastic camera angle showing him towering over others because the the camera's so low Uh, and it, and it feels like something from a citizen Kane composition, right? Something Orson Welles would have shot. Mm Mm-hmm. You, you did mention this, Brad. You get the use of the split screen showing the protest, the district attorney's reaction. Um, and there's there's no doubt that it's a De Palma film based on those segments, the visuals, the spinning camera. Uh, but really towards the end of the film, it loses some of that. You, you can actually, it's probably the last 45 minutes, you go, okay, there were some great shots in the beginning, starts to peter out in the middle. Towards the end, you lose all of that stuff. And I, I almost feel like Brian De Palma got bored behind the scenes and shooting this thing, or he just got, I don't know, fed up with all the politics. Gave up, yeah. Yeah, so technically, I think it looks great. Um, we'll talk about the script in a minute, but man, the the performances from the main stars, I think, sink this. I, yeah, I would absolutely. love to talk a little bit more detail, starting with Hanks. I think, I don't know how you guys feel. I, I'm with you, John. I would love to see him play a darker side. 
but I think he's totally miscast uh, for this Sherman McCoy role. I think he, I think he's totally wrong for this role. I think the problem is at that time, I think he had the gravitas to be able to pull it off if they, if they, the script was written differently. But I think when you're, when you're doing stuff like Turner and Hooch and all these other, like the burbs and all these comedies, I think people weren't ready probably to see him in a role like that. You know, like I feel like, I don't think he was ready to do it. Like, I don't, I don't think he had the acting chops yet to do it, to be honest. Yeah. I think he wasn't right there. I don't think he was there. No, you know, 10, five, 10 years down the road, if the, you know, it was made, I think possibly. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I think everybody, yeah. I think pretty much, I hate to say it, pretty much everyone was pretty much miscast almost throughout I, I th- the movie. I almost, think so. Even, yeah. Um, Hanks, it's the, the interesting thing about Sherman McCoy is if, if for this film, I, I think what you need to do is you need to empathize with him, but you yeah. really shouldn't root for him or like him. Like there should be moments that you go, oh, that's gray. And I understand where his frustration is coming from, like him shooting up the his whole house, getting everybody out of the dinner party. Um, but you still want him to suffer because he's kind of a douchebag. And, and you need somebody who can really kind of bounce back and forth between that and say, hey, from these events all the way to the end, you want to see him just kind of getting taken down a notch uh, and, and even watch this guy lie to get out of it but you want moments where you empathize with him, but you, you never root for him. And I don't think Tom Hanks could do that in 1990, maybe after road to perdition or, yeah. or maybe Tom Hanks now could do it Fair back point. then. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. think he could, uh, Bruce Willis. I think you guys said it. I mean, he's sleepwalking <laughs> in this performance. Um, Melanie Griffith to, is supposed to be the devil's candy. I, I don't think she sizzles at all. I, I mean, she's sexy as hell in this movie. She is. Um, I actually, so here, here's where I think the elements of the film, like they, they should have leaned into this is there are parts of this film that are a little bit transgressive and there's not enough of that. So, um, the, the two best performances, actually the best performances of this this film are the ones that are outside of our main characters. So Morgan Freeman's fantastic, even in his day or two of shooting, that he really is good at giving this vibe of a frustrated judge who sees right through all these shenanigans and is trying to push back on it and sort of get to the truth of the matter. And he's almost losing that battle. He's fantastic oh, in it. Um, yeah. That last, that, that monologue at the end, that means my, that's awesome. You know, well, yeah, that, but the, mm, the monologue at the end is so offensive. Just as like, that's how they end the movie. Like I, I was ready to punch someone. Uh, I don't find it offensive. It's so I, pre, it was like so sermony and preachy. It it is. It is that. I just I feel like you can have that, but you almost need an event to undercut it so that the judge gets more frustrated. Like you, you need to lean into that, right? Um, F. Marie Abraham actually gives this chilling. This is where the transgressive part comes. I think he gives this like chilling transgressive performance as a district attorney who's looking for the perfect scenario to make a political statement. Mm-hmm. And he has his own monologue at some point in the film where he's basically building this extremist like politics around race baiting. And he says, look, I'm not a racist, but then turns around and says, I'm going to make all the minorities love me. And he uses all the racial slurs under the sun. Um, that performance made me feel so uncomfortable. And I feel like this movie needed way more moments like that. Absolutely. If that's the movie, we should have had that movie. And yeah. it's, I think like we said, they dipped their toe in that water, but they didn't jump into the deep end. 
I, I agree hundred percent like that to me, that's the biggest crime of this film. There are spots within here that I think do work um, and, and are saying something and are starting to create a dialogue and are supposed to wake you up a little bit and kind of go, Oh, what, what's going on here? But then for every one of those, it turns around and plays it safe. And, and I know it's a big Warner Brothers studio high-profile film, and, and maybe they couldn't do it, but uh, I, I then really- why, Then why make I mean, then I, why that, make it? I was just going to say that. Like, why make it okay. if you're not going to just go for it, I guess? I, I wasn't prepared to hear the N-word more than – like, at all, but it's more than once in this movie. And I was like, oh, like, we could have done something, but we didn't. Yeah, I I don't know how you guys feel. Like I hear this I hear this statement. Like one of our friends had said this. Oh, you're 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 gonna watch Bonfire of the Vanities. I bet that movie uh like means more today than in nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about that and I go, <laughs> No, not at all. Um I, I think nineteen ninety versus twenty twenty four. I mean, we're we've been uh, Brad and I have been watching Citizen Kane and watching a lot of documentaries on Citizen Kane and watching the power of the press in essence manipulate, you know, the, um, the people within a country. When you read the documentary about what Orson Welles, um, you know, Citizen Kane is based on a man who had this paper empire and really ran for politics, um, but was trying to really change everybody's mind about all these issues through his newspaper. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, this kind of stuff has always been around. It's not <laughs> yeah. going anywhere. Bonfire yeah. of the Val- Vanities is not more relevant in 2024 than 1990. It's like, well, 15 years from now, we're still going to have these issues and we're still going to be talking oh, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but I, I was just, I was really, I was excited um, in 1990 because I saw it in the theater because I thought we would get something a bit topical, something a bit, um, in your face and ask some questions and maybe push some buttons and start that dialogue. And, and man, this thing is just dead on arrival in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I feel like it's one of those things that if it were made today, it would probably be like an independent film and it'd be people that weren't like, like a list actors. Cause I feel like maybe the studio would be more willing to give them the money to do it. You know, if you give them a, a smaller budget, some lesser known actors and just go for it because they'd be willing to take a chance on it. Because I do think, if they were to do it, in my opinion, the right way, which would be based off the novel, they'd have to kind of go the dark route. And I think to keep it really interesting, um, I think that would be the best way to do it, in my opinion, you know, because I feel like uh, to do it this way, it's just kind of like you're doing it half ass. It just it just doesn't doesn't vibe, you know, it just doesn't um, doesn't everything doesn't come together in a way that's just you're like, wow, that was a great movie. And I would just kind of walk away kind of feeling like it's just too many missed opportunities to do something interesting. Yeah. You know, it's like somebody, you know, threw just a a softball pitch at somebody and they whiffed like it's all there. The ingredients are there. Um, Yeah. And, and behind the camera, in front of the camera, all of it's a miss. Yeah. No, it just, it just doesn't come together and it should, because like you guys said, there are moments throughout this thing like like wow this is this is a cool moment here a cool moment there there's some great technical shots but ultimately it just kind of falls you know it just falls flat unfortunately and if it wasn't for those technical shots i think this thing would be like basically unwatchable yeah uh i i kind of well i think if it weren't for the technical shots i think if it weren't for morgan freeman f marie abraham if 
if yeah. it weren't for some of these side but you're, characters. They're, you're like 10, that's like 10 minutes of screen time. It is. It's, it's, I find it to be a very interesting misfire. 100%. Here, yeah. Here's the other thing. So I, I, you know, you read articles and stuff. I don't know about you guys. Sometimes you, you go down a rabbit hole and I'm looking at 1990 and I'm thinking, well, I thought do the right thing came out in 1990. Nope. It came out the year before, but I'm like, why am I thinking about Spike Lee in this film? Mm. And I remember seeing an article. I had to go back and look it up, but Spike Lee and Tom Wolf around the, the time the, you know, the book, it was announced the book was being made into a movie. And I think Spike Lee mm-hmm. and Tom Wolf had this sort of public discourse where they sat down and, and had a discussion about um, race and uh, in the United States and politics, et cetera. And the mm. differences between bonfire and the vanities, like the novel at that time and do the right thing. So over the weekend I, I made sure, well, I want to go watch do the right thing again. I haven't seen it for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really feel like bonfire. The vanities had this opportunity because do the right thing was a year before, right? Uh, yeah, it was 89. Yeah. yeah. Extremely powerful film, but bonfire should create a dialogue on how confusing and difficult it is to deal with race. But instead it feels like a monologue, especially like you said, Brad, with that decency speech. So I I had been thinking about this, like Spike Lee creates a story around one of the hottest days in New York. And you learn all about these characters and what drives them through most of the film. And the end of the film kind of culminates in the street riot. And you leave the film after everything, you know, the lights come on, et cetera. You leave the film ready to have a dialogue about racial tension in the United States. And, you know, was Sal wrong, right? What was Mookie? You know, you, you look you at everybody's. Yeah. I mean, it, it creates this dialogue of what do you feel about what happened at the end of the film, given that you spent two hours with these characters and really got to know them, right? Bonfire starts with this hit and run scenario and you spend the entire film watching people deal with the event and you leave the theater feeling like you were just preached at concerning how terrible the media and politicians are and everybody isn't concerned with the truth and it's a monologue and it's boring, but there was a prime opportunity to do something. Here's the thing. I would love to see Spike Lee direct bonfire. The vanities. Oh. There you go. I'm, okay. all, I'm all aboard for that one. Yeah. Because I, I think you need somebody to come in and do that to me. That's the brilliance of do the right thing it really takes these characters and these lives and creates an event. And then you have to walk away from that and deal with your own prejudices, how you feel about scenarios and people and um, you know, where, where you sit on certain topics and bonfire, the vanity should have done that. But De Palma was so wrapped up in the technical aspects of it that um, you really needed a director to craft that screenplay and those performances to create a dialogue versus a monologue. Well, and, and even think about do the right, uh, we're going to talk about do the right thing because yeah. I don't want to talk about bonfires anymore, but <laughs> do the right thing. Like feels New York. It feels Brooklyn. That pizzeria feels real. I, I think there are aspects of this that feel real. Really? I don't feel any of the Manhattan stuff. Like the, the gloss and everything of it, I, I think is there. It's just yeah. the, the, the difference is at least for me, I don't know about you do the right thing. That reality feels grounded because I feel the characters live in there. Yes. I feel like these are actors. Like it looks like New York and it has the feel of New York, but I, I think there's actors in those scenarios. Whereas do the right thing, the acting and the environment all kind of gel together. 
Yeah. I can agree with that for sure. But I honestly, I, I actually, <laughs> if you were to watch Bonfire of the Vanities and do the right thing sort of back to back or as a double feature, I think it does create a little bit of an interesting dialogue on race relations and in, in what we're seeing, not 1990, even, you know, through Hollywood and the media. And, and there is something that you can pick apart and have a pretty productive discussion on, but Bonfire of the Vanities should have, it, it, it needed a better director. In this case, Brian De Palma was not right for this material. It needed a better actor. Um, and they really needed to lean into the, to the darker elements of that screenplay, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the screenplay, I mean, I think that's, I mean, obviously there's so many different elements, but that it, it starts right there, you know, with that screenplay, that screenplay just was, eh, you know, and yeah. then from there you go down the line, like you said, better director, I hate to say it in this particular case, better actors. Cause you know, it just, they just don't work. Yeah. I would, it, I would love to see this movie remade to be quite yeah, honest. No, it's, it's, this is a perfect example of a movie that should be remade, you know, cause it, it, it at the foundation, the bones are there for something to do something good to come out of it. You know, if you were to remake it, you know, instead of like these movies that they remake that already have something good. And then they go ahead and like, Oh, let's go ahead and remake it. You know, it's like, you've already got something awesome. Why remake it? You know? Yeah. And I also find it weird. Like, is there like no music in bonfires? I didn't like remember any music. There is, it's just not memorable. Okay. Like that, that to me, that's a problem because again, we're talking about do the right thing, which is like my favorite kind of music, but like this thing just felt silent with that when where there's no conversation, it felt silent. And well, the, the boredom in this film is deafening. How's that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> it, it. It is. It'll, it'll lull you to sleep, but no, I 89 and 90 had some interesting films and even something like this, uh, as an interesting failure, it's I'm I, I just find it fascinating to go back and go wow we're still dealing with a lot of this stuff even in today's environment maybe in some hyper stylized version in the media it doesn't make this film more relevant or less relevant to 2024 but it it does say hey from a human condition standpoint we're going to be dealing with this stuff forever quite honestly yeah I mean Rodney King's the next year yeah 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 true absolutely um what else do you guys have on this one. I don't know. I think this, I should, this thing is, this thing is <laughs> so bad. It is so bad. Uh, this way. I, I bought the Blu-ray and it wasn't expensive and I, and I bought the doc. I'm glad I had the doc, but I'm like, man, shit. I didn't realize the, the movie was on YouTube. The entire movie. I was like, fuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, is, is this, this the is, worst film in his filmography? I don't know if it's the worst film, but I'm honestly, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to find myself rewatching it anytime soon. Let's put it that way. I, it, I, you know, it is I think it is. it's one of the worst. I think it's one of the worst films that we've done. Really? Because really? Not, like literally nothing works. Nothing works. Like there are films that we've done that are bad, but something works here. It is all disjointed and it, it, not like there's not an aspect of this film that you can say, well, that works because even the technical stuff peters out halfway through the film. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's fair. I, I don't know if it's the worst. I'd have to go back and look. I feel like we've had some stinkers and I'm, 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 again, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing, but I think there's aspects to bad films that we've done that 
would at least work it like at, at the basic filmmaking level. And, 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 and I guess like you hold the Palma up a little bit higher than someone say like, sorry, sorry, Jose, I'm going to say a name and I, I'm sorry. Like Mick G like, we're not expecting <laughs> Mick G to do anything great, but you see bride to Palma before in the credits of a film, you're expecting something a little higher quality. And, and this is like, feels like this guy hasn't made a film ever. And this is like 15 or 20 films into his filmography. It's three years after the untouchables, arguably his best film. Uh, it, it is interesting. Like the two films we've covered of his now blow out to this one, uh, feel like two entirely different directors, but I'll say this casualties of war, which came out beforehand, I think is one of his best works. And I know he put a lot into that. and was sort of crushed by its reception I almost feel like um, this film lacks some type of life or enthusiasm from the director. And it's almost, he did this job to pay the bills and he just was not into being in Hollywood after casualties of war. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. There's plenty of directors. They have a couple of bombs and they just need to keep on working, you know, they need to get back on the saddle. And that does make sense. You know, but I mean, even our, some of our favorite directors have the occasional films that are just like, eh, you know what I mean? And sometimes I guess it's just about collecting a paycheck. Yeah. And I, I, would, I, I got that. I would from the accept book too. that argument. I would accept that argument if he didn't do mission impossible six years later. Well, no, that's the thing. I, I it, like, even when you read the book, you steal, you, you, you hear these, you hear him talk about it in the devil's candy, the book about yeah. what casualties of war did to him as a director and how he thought that was going to be received entirely different. Cause for him, that is a personal film in terms of his views on the war. And, yeah, that was his platoon, right? Yeah, like human it, and, and just the human condition, right? So he, he poured a lot into that film and it got shit all over it, right? And um there, you know, it even got, I don't know, edited a little bit different than I think what he wanted. Uh but yeah, he's gonna come along and do Mission Impossible. I mean, heck, he he does a Hitchcockian raisin raising cane sort of horror film, Hitchcock film that does pretty well. But I, I think Bonfire of the Vanities is kind of like, well, he's out there directing. He doesn't probably want to direct at that point after the Casualty of Wars incident. And um, the the byproduct of Bonfire of the Vanities is a disinterested director um, putting this together and uh, just kind of says, okay, just I got to get out from underneath this. Like deliver something and go on to the next thing because he's, he's well, just like pissed. The, like he says in the doc. In the doc, he says – he's playing it safe because if he follows the book and he goes that down that path, it's going to ruin him. Yeah. And I'm you know, and the bomb being, and being a bomb anyway. So regardless, it doesn't matter. So he was playing it safe, at least according to the doc. I mean, I don't know if you buy that or not, but that's what he said. In the doc, he said that he, he was playing it safe because he didn't want to go down that dark rabbit hole. And cause he's feel like people wouldn't accept it. So, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, his best friend is Steven Spielberg and here's a guy yeah. who, works great within the Hollywood system and is the poster yeah, child absolutely. for a director within the Hollywood system. And here's Brian De Palma who hates the Hollywood system yeah. and uh, they're, they're best friends. And he, again, can't rep that book yeah. enough. You'll, you'll hear about Steven Spielberg visiting De Palma on the set and seeing cuts of the mm. film and offering stuff. It's, it's really interesting, but yeah, no, I, I'm actually very interested in actually reading it. Yeah. So, all right, well, it is time for the question. I'll start with you, John. We had a very entertaining, lively discussion on 1990s Bonfire, The Vanities. Is it a bomb? 
Oh, man, it kills me to say it, man. I don't like I particularly like on my own thing. I, I I don't pick films unless I'm I'm in love with them. So I like I hate calling a film a bomb, but like I I have to. It just there's just not enough there to just be compelling or really interesting. You know, there's some things here and there, like technical shots that are cool. There's a couple parts, like you said, with F. Murray Abraham and Morgan Freeman had little bits here and there. But as a whole, yeah, I, I think I have to call it a bomb, unfortunately. Okay. Well, Brad, I think we know where you land. You Absolutely wanna... a bomb. Absolutely a bomb. Uh, man, I hate saying this, but I just, I got to agree with you. Uh, it's a bomb. <laughs> it's It's not Dracula 3D bomb, but it nonetheless is a bomb, right? So he still gets to keep Sad legendary boy. status, is that right, Brad? Mm, no. Yeah, he can. He can. Yeah, yeah. He can. He yeah, he can. Okay. Well, I have some listener feedback. It it might actually spur some additional conversation. I actually have a lot of listener feedback, Brad. It's been super busy. Oh, nice. Uh, we got a recommendation from Mia. Okay. She wrote in and said, "Bone Tomahawk Horror Western with Kirk Russell from 2015." Absolutely. Kurt Russell. Oh, that's an awesome movie. Yeah. So we need to add that to the list. Uh, I love this email. This is from uh, Chandon. Uh, Greetings, Troy and Brad, a.k.a. Not a Bombers. I got behind in November, and it took me a bit to catch up. While I had seen most of those before, it gave me a great excuse to watch the original Narrow Margin for the first time. Watching it reminded me of a film like Nightmare Alley, where the writing could be smart, concise, efficient, and do so much in a smaller running time even better than del Toro's version in many respects. Some of the twists seem far-fetched, but could easily be forgiven. John Dahl films would be ripe for discussion if you repeat Noir Vember this coming year, one of the best neo-noir directors of the 90s and often overlooked. Red Rock West and The Last Seduction get a lot of reevaluation now, both great films, but his debut, Kill Me Again, with Val Kilmer might be ripe for discussion. His noir sensibilities even show up in more commercial fare like Rounders and Joyride. Your mini January sci-fi run of Midnight Special and Prospect reminded me that another overlooked low-budget sci-fi flick called Fast Color came out in 2018 and was largely ignored by general audiences. For sci-fi subgenres, I'm also in the camp of cerebral science or space travel, although Alien is still one of my favorite films of all time. Coincidentally, I also bought the Cape Light 4K of Limbo last year, but you're talking me an excuse to rewatch it since. There is little more for me to say that you didn't already discuss last week with Sammy. Looks amazing in 4K, although it's the high contrast, hyper real HDR lighting that gives it an otherworldly feel. Anyone who liked the HD stream would love it in UHD. Feels like a modern art piece. Great inventive camera work and a harrowing emotional journey with many questionable characters. It really puts you through the ringer. Because of that, this is more of a mood piece than something I can actually watch. P.S. Looking forward to the Gods of Egypt discussion, this movie, eh, I wish Proyas would get a chance to direct better written fare like his early films. At least it looks great at times. Sorry this ran so long. Regards, Chandon. Great email. What about the dick, Troy? Yeah. You, you have become somewhat of a internet sensation with your I views have. on Egyptian genitalia. I mean, I just, I, I feel, I feel like if we all are true through true to ourselves, when Gerard Butler slams up that nine foot God, you're like, what's that dick look like? Oh my God. <laughs> Moving on. Oh, I, we should really revisit the idea of doing another November. I had a lot of oh, fun. We're good. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right, cool. This one's from Patrick. 
Hi, guys. As a child of the 90s, I got Brad's Beck joke right away and definitely agree that Beck in Gods of Egypt was a loser. I don't know about killing him, though. That might be a bit dramatic. Thanks for all you do, Pat. There you go. Um, <laughs> we got an email. We, we haven't heard from this individual. I'm going to say the quote individual in quotations uh, from yep. Mr. Chris Evans. For those uh, who aren't familiar with past episodes, Chris Evans is a fake account that Brad created to write in. <laughs> yep. um, He's my, my gnome de plume. So Chris Evans, a.k.a. Brad, wrote in and said, Hey, gents, Chris here. You know the guy that Troy thinks isn't real. Just wanted to send it. See, that's something exactly you would write, Brad. Um, <laughs> to throw you off the scent, yes. Exactly. Just wanted to send a message telling you how much I love the Gods of Egypt episode. I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Don't know what was in the water, but you guys killing me. <laughs> Probably one of my favorite episodes. See, that's exactly what Brad would write in mm -hmm. so that we would pick more movies to talk about Egyptian <laughs> genitalia. Anything to get that Egyptian genitalia in there. Yep. You you have no idea the week after that, I was being bothered daily from texts from Brad, like, you can't deny you didn't think about that. <laughs> Every day. That's how I would start my mornings. Um. Brad, if, if somebody wants to send in uh, feedback or recommendations on movies we should watch, how do they do that? Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com or head over to notabombpodcast, uh, hit the contact us button, uh, leave your suggestion there or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, yeah, we just re-upped for our website, so go over there, please. Make it worth our investment. Yeah, we're, we're still doing this thing. Uh, John, how do they get a hold of you and where do they find all your content? Um, you guys can just go to, uh, well, I have my Facebook page and now for something a little bit different, uh, you can check that out or you can go just straight to uh, YouTube and just do it. Just let's search now for something a little bit different and it'll pop right up. Um, I've only been doing this for about five months, so I, I only have about 24 episodes, but, um, I'm working like trying to get new content out. Like, like I said, every two weeks and, uh, hoping to have some interesting stuff to, to look forward to. So awesome. We love the channel. We love your content. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. It means a lot. Uh, Brad, what are we talking about next week? Well, we are going to welcome back the Wachowski siblings uh, to the show. Uh, we did Speed Racer before. Mm -hmm. and now we are going to do the 2015 space opera, Jupiter Ascending. Oh, boy. That's a oh long boy. one, too, isn't it? Apparently, Channing Tatum plays a dog man. Yeah. Uh <laughs> We know how to pick them. Tell you what, folks. Yep. Are you sure you're not doing Breaking Bat Brad all over again? Because that's that sounds like that could we're be. We're just a, we're a, fooling a everybody. Yeah, we start the year off with like three what I think are pretty amazing films, and then we're like, hey, we're just we're gonna go through this Drek. Um, <laughs> hey, that's what it's all about, though. It, it's about what films can create an interesting conversation. No, absolutely, absolutely. I, sure. I guarantee next week's gonna be interesting. So I can't oh no, wait. absolutely. Hey. Don't worry. I'll make a red rocket joke. Don't worry. I see right there. Brad is choosing his films this year over what type of dick jokes can he get in? <laughs> if you haven't caught on yet. Oh, it's so oh true. Um, see you when he's Christmas. Well, I, I think uh, we just need to list out uh, all the other podcasts that they got. Yeah, Dada bump HR is livid right now. Yeah, they are. But yeah, who, who else should they be listening to? Uh, yeah, so that's uh, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus. Guess what? We know for a fact that Watch Skip Plus is coming back yes. very soon. Excited. Um, 
the VHS files has come back. They're going to be releasing. I think Josh said back on Fridays once again. So look for those. We got we got I, a hint of a we we actually got to preview something he's working on too, which is yeah really we cool. we can't we're under NDA so we yep. can't speak of it. But yes, there's some things in the water there. Night of the Living podcast, the Backlook Cinema podcast, Mixtape podcast, Movie Struck, and Raiders of the podcast. Awesome. Well, John, please, uh, we're going to send you a couple of picks, and hopefully, we can get you back on the show. It was an absolute pleasure having you, man. No, thank you guys for having me. Like I said, this is my first time kind of doing this. I'm usually just uh, doing the solo things, so it's a new experience. It was a, it was an absolute pleasure coming on and talking to you about this film. You know, so thank you for Hopefully having. Hopefully, we could get you on for like a better film <laughs> next time. I'm <laughs> sorry. Nice. <laughs> no, get out of here. No, I, you know the thing about this film is like at the end of the day, it was still enjoy- very enjoyable talking about it, and and there is things of merit to talk about in the film. There are there are some some things that are there that are merit. Uh, obviously I would have liked a better film too, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> I had a great time. So thank you guys for, like I said, inviting me here. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode. Hopefully I was able to mute all my coughs. I'm just getting over this little cold. Uh, come back next week. We're both Brad and I are going to be super healthy so that we can take on dog boy movies. Um, and Brad's, you know, red rocket jokes. So, uh, yeah, come back next week. It'll be, it'll be a blast. Don't don't lose your head. (laughs) Oh no.